Morning, everyone. Morning. It's really nice to see all of you this morning. So glad you could be here. We have a pretty full crowd out there today. So bless the Lord. And it's Advent and time to prepare our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just so grateful for the presence of each and every one of you. So uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our study in this little uh, four-week Advent series uh, that we are calling uh, For the Glory of God. trouble on the slide there. For the glory of God, there it is, an Advent series on God's eternal plan. And we're in week two and we're talking about the fall. Uh, So we were talking about uh, that that this Advent series is a four-week series where we're going to talk about God's uh, overarching narrative uh, in his creation, which is creation, the fall, and then followed by um, uh, the redemption at the cross and then the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, So before we get into the message today, let's just ask the Lord to help us in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for our time together. Uh, We are so blessed to be among your children, to be part of your family, and to uh, have a home here uh, at Grace Redeemer Community Church to worship you. And Lord, we lift you up today. We exalt you. We praise your holy name. Uh, Help us to uh, grasp all that you have for us today. May your Holy Spirit come now and illumine the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a director uh, who makes movies rarely captures uh, the scene perfectly in the first take, right? That almost never happens. Uh, Actors forget their lines, uh, people are out of place, uh, the weather sometimes interferes, uh, lighting and sound are, are all off. Uh, It can be a mess when when the directors are making a movie, and that results usually uh, in the fact that at the end of the movie, there's usually more film on the cutting room floor than ever actually makes it into the movie because uh, so much editing has to be done. All the mistakes have to be edited out, and when you look at the movie, uh, it looks perfect just as uh, the filmmaker intended, but there were tons of mistakes and tons of things that went wrong along the way, and those things don't make it into the movie. Uh, But in God's narrative, everything is completely different. There were no mistakes. And so what we're going to look at today is that sin entered into the world and death entered into the world with sin. But that was not a mistake. Uh, God planned that from before the foundation of the world and he authored that uh, before he ever created the world. And so last week we talked about uh, God's plan and we looked at it in four separate parts. We talked about the fact that there is exposition of a story, right? Uh, any good story has exposition, uh, inciting inc- uh, an, an inciting incident that leads to rising conflict. Uh, there is the climax and then there's the resolution. So we said last week uh, that this Uh, setting of the story is his creation. God introduced the main character uh, in the story, which is himself, and then he created the whole universe, and that's the setting of the story. And more specifically, he created the Garden of Eden, and then he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that's the setting for the story. And after he put Adam in the garden, he declared his creation to be very good. And now this week, we're going to talk about part two, the inciting incident that leads to conflict. Uh, Every good story has conflict in it that has to be resolved. That's what makes the story interesting. Uh, And in God's story, uh, here comes the serpent. He is the inciter. He is the great antagonist in God's story. And his design is to ruin everything that God has created, uh, to destroy man's relationship with God and to doom man to eternity apart from God if he can have his way. 
And again, none of this took God by surprise. He wrote the script before it was ever uh, begun. And so God expelled Satan from heaven to earth, knowing full well what was going to happen. He knew that sin and death were going to enter the world, but that was all part of God's great design and plan to show his love and his grace and his mercy to his creatures. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try and do something that I never do, which is to cover an entire chapter of Scripture in one sermon. Uh, so we're normally taking it apart a verse or two at a time, but we're going, to, we're going to do all of chapter three today. And here's the summary of the chapter. Uh, at the fall, Adam sinned, and God showed his holiness in judging sin. But more importantly, God showed his mercy in promising a savior and withholding the ultimate punishment, which is death, and providing for Adam's needs. And we'll see all of that uh, in this chapter. And so uh, we'll look at it in four parts. Uh, sin enters the world, verses 1 to 7. Uh, God's judgment, uh, verses 8 to 19. Uh, salvation in the middle of God's judgment, verse 15. And then God's provision, verses 20 to 24. And we could spend weeks in Genesis chapter 3. We're obviously not going to be able to do that. This is going to be more of a flyover of Genesis chapter 3. But I want to make one point from each of these sections uh, in the book. Uh, and so we'll start with sin entering the world. And this is verses 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from uh, any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was also desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So the main point of these verses is this. Sin is the result of rejecting God's authority and provision. Sin is the result of rejecting God's authority and provision. God created the world and everything in it, and then he pronounced it very good. And that means perfect. He put Adam in the garden, a perfect environment uh, in which to thrive. And he gave, her, gave Adam a helper who we call Eve. But she wasn't called Eve until the end of chapter 3. Uh, we'll notice that. Uh, she was called woman until then, until after God had banished them from the garden. Uh, and we'll talk about that later. That's important, uh, and I want to get to it in its time. Uh, but for now, uh, she's just called the woman. And what I want us to see is that the woman, by eating, rejected God's authority and provision. And Adam did the same. So the first thing that we see is they rejected God's authority. Uh, what happens? The, 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 we, we have them immediately uh, questioning what the word of God was. Uh, and that's because this inciting incident that gives rise to, to rising conflict occurs here. The serpent enters the scene uh, and he begins to raise questions 
about the commandment of God. Did God really say? Uh, so it's very interesting that in chapter one, God spoke everything into existence, right? God speaks, the universe begins to exist. Uh, chapter two, uh, God spoke to Adam and he gave Adam dominion over everything uh, in this world, except for one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And now in chapter three, who's speaking? The serpent now speaks. And the serpent has the audacity to question the, the, the words that his own creator has said. And the woman was not up to the challenged. Uh, she, she did three things here. The first thing she did was that she reduced God's permission. She said, uh, or God said, of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat. But when the serpent questioned her, she said merely that God said, we may eat from the tree, uh, from any tree in the garden. And so we may eat is something less than we may freely eat, right? Uh, eating freely is like uh, going to uh, uh, some all-day buffet and just gorging yourself a day and night as long as you want to. Uh, but freely eat is something greater than we may eat, which tends to have a more restrictive connotation. And so uh, by that little change, the woman was already uh, falling for the serpent's trick to cause her to think that God was withholding something from her, uh, that there was something better for her that she was not allowed to have. And so she reduced God's permission, and she also added to God's prohibition. God only said, you may not eat it, God never said anything about not touching it. And so he's, she's adding to the restrictions, adding to the prohibition, uh, making it seem like God is holding out more from her than he actually was. And then finally, the woman weakened the penalty for sin. Uh, he said, God said, you shall surely die. Uh, but the woman said only you will die in response to the serpent's questions. And so these three manipulations uh, of God's word, uh, in, the, in those, the woman rejected God's authority over her. And God put those restrictions in place for a reason. And, you know, Adam didn't know the reason. The woman didn't know the reason, but that's not necessary. God is the creator. God has authority. And so their charge was simply to obey, whether they knew the reasons or not. Uh, it's no excuse for disobedience to say, well, I don't understand God's law. That doesn't make a difference at all. They are the creatures. He is the creator, and their duty is to obey. So they rejected God's authority, and they also rejected God's provision. Uh, we see here that, that uh, she, they, were seeking something more than God had already provided. God gave them everything they could have wanted except for this one prohibition. And then they got to thinking that he was withholding his best from them. And we have to be careful here, too, because we can do that ourselves, can't we? Uh, we find ourselves, uh, you know, in a beautiful, warm building, fully dressed. You all look wonderful out there today. I'm sure you've all eaten within the last 24 hours. Uh, you have all the spiritual blessings that you need. And we can tend to focus on the one thing that God has withheld from us uh, for whatever his reasons are. We didn't get this promotion. We didn't get this raise. Uh, we didn't get to go out on a date with the girl or the boy we wanted or whatever it happens to be. We tend to focus on the one thing. And I think that's what Eve and Adam were doing here, rather than focusing on everything that God had provided. So we have to be careful not to fall into that trap ourselves. Uh, but the woman, uh, she had this temptation now to be like God, to be wise like God. And, and this temptation of being wise, of knowing good and evil, was too much for her. Uh, 
looking at this fruit so uh, shiny and beautiful and holding it in her hands and thinking about how this fruit had the power to make her wise. And uh, she got that far and she was basically done. She, she could not uh, walk away from the temptation having gotten that close to it, which is another lesson for us. We call it in our house, don't get too close to the puddle or you're going to get splashed. Uh, and so the meaning of that is that if a bus is coming by and you're within a foot of the puddle, it's going to ride through that puddle and you're going to get soaking wet. So stand back from the puddle. And so we want to stand back from these temptations in our own lives uh, that lead to sin, because if we get too close, uh, we will get splashed. And so that's what happened to Eve. Uh, she fell into this temptation. She got too close to the brink and then she couldn't stop. And we don't know if Adam was there the whole time. Uh, the text is very unclear about that. Uh, he may have arrived later. He may have been with her the whole time. We don't know, but it seems like he just went along for the ride and he ate the fruit uh, and they both fell into sin. Now at the end of chapter two, chapter two ends with, uh, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And here in chapter three, we see that they knew that they were naked and they became ashamed. Uh, so we would say at the end of chapter 2, they were so oblivious to their nakedness, they didn't even know that they were naked. They didn't know anything else. But after they sinned, they were aware of it uh, immediately, uh, where they had been comfortable with their nakedness. Now they were completely ashamed and embarrassed by it. And so they try to sew fig leaves together uh, to cover up their shame. Uh, but how long would that last? That's not a long-lasting solution. And they gained knowledge and they gained wisdom just as the serpent promised, but with a twist, right? That's how Satan always works. He always works with a twist. There's, a, there's some truth in what he says, but he turns the truth ever so slightly. Uh, and so it becomes a curse to us. And so uh, the wisdom that they gained was evil. And, and the wisdom that they gained uh, brought them out of God's presence. So it wasn't good for them. And the serpent proved to be a liar rather than a truth speaker but he did win his victory, at least for the moment. Now, think about the sins that you and I habitually commit, whatever they happen to be. They probably fall into one of two categories that they have to, right? You're either rejecting God's authority or you're rejecting God's provision, and most likely both. Everything we do is because we want something that God, we think God has withheld from us. And if we're going to avoid sin, the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize God's authority over us. He is the creator. We are the creature. He makes the rules. We obey. It's not our place to question them. God has authority. We are in submission to him. So recognize God's authority. And the second thing is to be grateful for what he has provided. Be satisfied. He's met all of our physical needs. He's met all of our spiritual needs. And if he hasn't given us all that we want, well, that says more about us than it says about him. We need to be grateful with his provision. So sin is the re result of rejecting God's authority and rejecting his provision. And there are consequences to uh, rejecting God and to the sin that we uh, engage in. So let's talk about God's judgment, verses 8 to 19. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me. 
Men, we do that, don't we? The woman who you gave me, she gave me from the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and she shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here's the main point about this section. God is serious about our sin and will hold us responsible. <clears throat> We've seen already that our theme for the week, this Advent, is peace. And I would say that in our natural state, we do not have peace with God, right? We are sinners uh, and being uh, sinful is, is being a, an enemy of God. A peace means harmony, tranquility, a freedom from conflict. But as a result of the fall, we no longer have that uh, in our own natural state. And man is an in intelligent creature, and he is not able, or he is able by his own will to, go back a slide, please. Uh, he is able to, uh, with uh, his will and his intelligence and freedom to choose right and wrong. Uh, but when we disobey, there is no peace with God. Uh, there is only conflict. And we should assume that there are going to be consequences when we sin. And Adam and Eve learned that, uh, but he dealt with the serpent first. And so what he says uh, to the serpent is, uh, on your belly you shall crawl all the days of your life. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, talk about how judgment on the serpent represents the struggle between good and evil. Back one, please. A judgment on the serpent represents the struggle between good and evil. Uh, and so God cursed the world after the fall, uh, but the serpent received greater judgment than all the other animals or beasts of the field. And what it says is that the serpent would perpetually crawl on his belly, uh, which means that God had his complete and total victory for all time over the serpent. Uh, creation, or crawling in the dust is, is kind of a metaphor uh, for extreme humility, and it means that Satan has experienced total defeat, uh, not only then, but in the future when uh, God bruises him on the head or crushes his head. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. So that's the judgment on the serpent. Uh, it represents the struggle between good and evil. A judgment on the woman is increased pain in childbirth and male domination. So the first thing is this increased pain in childbirth. Uh, Anyone who has had a baby or has witnessed the birth of a baby uh, knows full well how painful it is. If you've been in the waiting room or in the labor room with your wife, uh, it's not the most comfortable place to be. She's very uncomfortable and uh, it's, it's hard to watch your spouse in pain. Um, 
So that's why they call it labor. And apparently the, the pain of childbirth now is even greater than uh, it would have been had sin not entered the world. But every woman who ever has given birth or will give birth experiences this pain as a perpetual reminder of original sin, that the, the original sin that was committed back in the Garden of Eden. So a pain in childbirth. And then the second judgment is the desire to rule over her husband, but she will not be able to. Now, this is a very difficult verse. Uh, there are a lot of interpretations, and I've read a lot of commentaries about this and uh, tried to do my best to, to uh, decipher this and interpret this the, the way I think is best. And so here's what I think. Uh, the word desire that we read here is the same word used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, uh, where uh, God talks to Cain and says, a sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to master you. Uh, so this desire uh, to commit sin uh, is, is, is something that happens with the fall. We have this desire uh, to rebel against God and, and his institutions. And because of the curse, the, the woman, woman would have to fight her desire uh, to be the ruler of her husband, which is a desire that works against God's ordained order for the household. Uh, the principle of the headship of Adam uh, is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 2, 22, where, where God said it's not good for man to be alone, and then he takes a rib from Adam and fashions a woman from Adam. So when God made her, uh, made her uh, he, she was his helper, uh, equal with him, but his helper. But now the curse on uh, the woman is such that it's much harder for her now to submit uh, to the headship of the uh, husband in the household. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you may have experienced times uh, in your own household uh, where you were found it difficult to submit to your husband for whatever reason. Uh, and the same goes for the man. Uh, we are supposed to be the head over the household, but there are times when we don't do it in a loving way. Uh, we do it in an authoritative way, in a dominating way. And so it's not just the problem. The problem is not just with Eve. The problem is with Adam, too. The curse is on both of them. Uh, she wants to be head over the household, and he dominates and domineers her also in a way that is not the way God intended. They're both contaminated by sin, and I want us to see that. Now, this verse is not anti-woman. Uh, God said that it was not good for man to be alone. So God created woman, uh, and then he pronounced all things very good. But the curse uh, replaced this mutuality and equality and, and this innocence between them. They were together and they didn't know they were naked, but now together uh, they're embarrassed in front of each other because they're naked. So they make uh, you know, uh, cloth uh, or uh, fig leaves to, to cover themselves. Uh, this this uh, innocence that they had is now replaced with this struggle and this uh, you know, potential tyranny uh, for the man over the woman uh, and, and the woman's reluctance to submit to her husband. And so what we understand from this, uh, especially on this side of the cross, is that the only way for us to do this, men and women alike, for women to submit and for men to lead lovingly is by submission to the Holy Spirit. Because we won't do this in our own power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit because conflict has now entered into relationship as a result of uh, the fall. And then there's this judgment on Adam. And the judgment on Adam is painful toil to make the ground produce food. 
So the result of Adam's eating is difficulty in future eating. By the sweat of his brow uh, will he be able to make food. Uh, the, the, the ground used to produce food easily, but now it's going to produce thorns and thistles and weeds and all kinds of inedible plants. And before uh, the, the fall, the tending of the garden was a joy, but now it's hard work. By the sweat of his brow, he'll produce it. And not only that, but Adam's days would end. Uh, we see here that, that uh, you are dust, and to dust you will return. And so death entered the world when sin entered the world. And we talked about this in our study of Romans 8. The ground is cursed, the whole earth is cursed, and it groans under the weight and the pain of sin as it waits for the Lord to redeem it. And here we are, thousands of years later, and God's judgments still have not been lifted. There is still pain in childbirth. There is still conflict between the man and the woman in marriage. And by the sweat of his brow, the man produces food. Uh, we go to the supermarket and buy it, but ask the farmer if it's easy uh, for, to make the ground produce food. It's really hard. And this all seems like a hopeless situation. What is the point of living in this struggle with each other and scratching out a meager existence in the quest to survive? And why does God hold you and me responsible for the sin of Adam that took place eons ago? Why does he hold us responsible? Well, and we weren't even there, right? Well, we might think that that's unfair, but God says, you know, you were there in the sense that Adam is your representative. If Adam did this, under perfect conditions in the Garden of Eden, well, we all, every one of us, would have done it too. And so God holds us responsible. That's a, a view that, Ad, that, that theologians call Adam being our federal head. There's also the view that we were present in Adam bodily since we were all descendants of Adam, uh, then it's no surprise that we are held responsible because we, are, we were in Adam when he committed the sin. So we're responsible for it. Uh, so. Uh, whether you hold to either one of those two views, God holds to those two views, and we are, we are responsible uh, for our sin. And so what we need, because we, now we have this enmity with God, we need peace with God. And the good news is that though we are condemned by one man's sin, we are also saved by one man's sacrifice. We talked about this in Romans 5. By sin, uh, by one man, sin entered the world and death with sin, but by the other man, by the perfect man, by one man's obedience, mankind was saved. And in Genesis 3.15, the coming of that one man is prophesied for the first time in the Bible. And if not for verse 15, which is tucked in the middle of all of these verses about judgment, there would be no hope no peace, no point of living, but because of verse 15, there is hope of a redeemer who will deliver mankind and the earth from the curse. So speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, we see this hope of future salvation. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so the main point of this verse is that God anticipated the fall and planned the solution in Christ Jesus. So it's clear from reading in the verse that this verse is much more than about this serpent and this woman. Uh, this is a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Uh, and the seed of the serpent are all those who reject God and ultimately reject Christ to follow Satan. 
and the seed of the woman are the people who follow Christ or follow God and then ultimately follow Christ. But ultimately, the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ himself, uh, the one who will ultimately destroy Satan. But this battle continues all throughout history, right? Beginning in the very next chapter, in, in chapter 4, Cain was a child of Satan who killed righteous Abel, the offspring of the woman. And so you and I, we now live in trying times, right? There's massive conflict in the world. You can't live in this world for five minutes and not feel it. And we might feel like uh, the children of the serpent are triumphing over the children of the woman. But that's not so, because the seed of the woman had his victory over Satan at the cross and at his resurrection uh, over all of the children of Satan, the Jews who crucified him, the Romans who crucified him, and all those who rejected him and sent him to the cross. Now, Genesis 3.15 is the very first prophecy in the Bible of a coming Messiah. And this is what it means. When we look at that verse, it's a little obscure. But the serpent crawls on his belly, and the very best he can do, because he's on the ground, is to strike the heel of the man. Uh, and so at the cross, Satan did strike uh, Jesus' heel. Uh, and Jesus did go to the cross, and he did die. But he was resurrected. So that blow that Satan struck, that the serpent struck, was not fatal because Jesus rose from the dead to redeem mankind from the power and penalty of sin. But uh, Jesus has his victory over Satan by bruising the serpent's head. Now, Jesus' resurrection is the bruise to Satan's head. And some of your Bibles may say uh, that the serpent bruised Jesus' heel or bruised the, the seed's heel. And then uh, likewise, the seed bruised Satan's head. Uh, but some of your translations may say crushed Satan's head. Now it's the same Hebrew word, but the translators used crushed the second time it's used there, crushed Satan's head to indicate this total defeat, this fatal blow that Jesus dealt to Satan on the cross and through his resurrection. So from that point forward, from the resurrection on, Satan knows it's over, right? The battle is lost from his perspective and all that's left to happen is for Jesus to come again. And when he does, he's just going to mop up the mess that is left here and destroy his enemies and usher in a new kingdom. So when we think about this verse, God's grace is truly amazing, isn't it? When you think about God's grace, uh, before, Adam had just sinned, right? Uh, immediately. And here's God looking for them in the cool of the garden. Uh, he pronounces judgment on them but he doesn't even get to finish pronouncing judgment on them before he's already providing for them a savior, uh, a promise of future redemption uh, for all of humanity. Uh, and that's right in the middle here of these verses. So he planned in advance for Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, to, to live the life we couldn't live, to, to defeat uh, Satan and purchase our salvation and reverse the curse on the earth. It's Christmas time, and we're singing a lot of Christmas carols. And Isaac Watts uh, was a famous hymn writer. He wrote the great Christmas carol, Joy to the World. And the third verse really talks about what uh, happened in the reversing of the curse. Uh, he wrote, No more let sins and sorrows grow. 
nor thorns infest the ground. Remember, that comes right from Genesis 3.15, that thorns and thistles uh, will be produced. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? Over the entire earth, the people, the whole world, the whole world groans under this curse. And he comes to make his blessings flow. So this is the reversal of the curse. And all that Isaac Watts wrote about, God planned from before the foundation of the world. And it was all accomplished at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now all we're doing is waiting for the final fulfillment when Jesus comes again. And in the meantime, while we wait, uh, we are just waiting uh, and God is providing for us. He provides for our every need. And so let's look at these final few verses of Genesis chapter 3 and see uh, God's provision for the present for uh, Adam and Eve and for us in our present. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So here's the main point. While we wait for our redemption, God graciously provides everything that we need. So after God convicted Adam and Eve and banished them from the garden, uh, Adam trusted God. He trusted the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God would provide a savior. Adam accepted God's punishment uh, and he accepted God's judgment. And now, after that, now is when God, or when Eve, or God, I'm sorry, when Adam gave the woman a name. Uh, up to now, she's just been called woman. But now he calls her Eve, which means living. And the author tells us uh, that she was the mother of all the living. So it's important that Adam named her that because uh, he trusted God's promise. And, and the, the name shows that he trusted God's promise. Uh, and that though, even though the earth was cursed, uh, Adam trusted that, Adam's, or that his humanity and, the, and that the human race would continue. So it was an act of faith on Adam's part to call her that. Now, you probably all have vivid imaginations. Imagine all the things that Adam could have called his wife. If he was given the power to name her, and it was her fault, at least in his mind, that they ate and got cast out of this good and beautiful garden, what are the, some of the things you might have named her in that situation, right? You could have called her sinner, you could have called her fool, or you could have called her any number of things that are really mean, but Adam doesn't call her that, right? He calls her living, uh, the mother of living, and that's a significant in, uh, indication of his trust uh, in God's provision. And God did banish them from the garden, but at the same time, he provided all that they needed. And he replaced these fig leaves with, with animal skins, which are certainly much more durable, but that's not the point. The point is not the durability of the skins as much as the fact that death follows sin. God had to kill animals to provide these skins for them, and the shedding of blood is always required for sin. 
And we see that uh, in, the, in uh, the, the, uh, the life and death of Jesus. The, the shedding of blood is always required. The sacrificial system, the entire system was uh, so that the, the, the Jews would have an opportunity to make atonement for their sins. Uh, God allowed that uh, so that they could stay in his good graces. And that system stayed in place until Jesus come, came and shed his blood once and for all on the cross for our sins. So how gracious of God uh, not to snuff them out uh, when they sinned, not to snuff us out when we sin. And so even at the fall, even though it seemed Satan had his victory, God's grace and God's provision was greater still. So let's summarize all that we learn about God from chapter three. God showed his love in planning for the redemption of man's sin. God showed his holiness in judging sin. He showed his grace in the promise and prophecy of a future savior, and he showed his provision in providing coverings for them and allowing them to live. Now, our Advent theme is peace. Because of Jesus's work on the cross, believers have peace with God. Sin entered the world and death with it, uh, but lasting peace is possible with God because Jesus died to pay for our sin. He was born at Christmas, and we celebrate that at this time of year, but the whole purpose of his life was his death and resurrection. So let's talk about application. Here's the first one. We can have peace in the world because of Jesus. Now, many of us, uh, if not most or all of us, are, are distressed now about the state of the world. Uh, there is division, there is disease, there's disappointment, there's death, there's despair, and it's all because the curse still exists on the earth. But in Jesus Christ, there is peace. The Christmas season is a time to reflect uh, on God's peace, uh, to reflect on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and for us to celebrate our peace with him. God has reconciled us to himself uh, through the blood of Jesus. And though there is trouble in the world, we have peace with him, peace in our hearts, because we know that no matter what happens in the world, Christ died for us, and we will live for eternity with him if we have trusted him in him as our Savior. So be encouraged today. Be at peace. God loves us, and he's chosen us, and our eternity is secure. So we can have peace in the world because of Jesus. And secondly, the peace we have should change the way we live. We have peace with God, brothers and sisters. If we have received him as our savior, this enmity between us and God, this tension is over. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the war is over. Uh, Jesus Christ's blood has healed the, the void between us. And that fact should change the way that we live. Our lives should reflect the peace that we have with God rather than the the hopelessness and the despair and the fear that exists in the world today. Unbelievers have no peace because they don't know Jesus and they don't know uh, the Savior, but we do. And so if we look just like the rest of the world uh, with fear and hopelessness and despair, what kind of witness is that? We need to look different from the world. We need to remember that God is in control. And even if we don't understand what's going on, especially when we don't understand what's going on, when the world is looking at us and saying, uh, this Jesus of yours, does he make any difference in your life? 
life? Well, he ought to make a difference in our lives and it should be reflected in the way we live. Uh, I'm not talking about putting on an act like we're, we're acting or faking that we're not in despair. We should not be in despair. We should be able to show the world that the Holy Spirit has changed us and so we can uh, exude this peace that we have with Jesus Christ and reflect it to others. So it's when the world is at its craziest, it's when the world needs the peace and love of God the most, and it's on us as Christians to be witnesses to a world that so desperately needs it. God doesn't make mistakes. COVID is not a mistake. The election is not a mistake, no matter how you feel about it. God planned this all out. God doesn't have any film on his cutting room floor. It's perfect. It's just as he wanted it. So God is gracious and good. Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that God is gracious and good? Well, let's live like we do. Let's show the peace that we have with God to a world that is in desperate need. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do lament the fall. We lament the fact that sin entered the world. And and we do lament the fact, Lord, that uh, there is enmity in the world among us and Uh, just difficulty in the world because sin and death entered the world. But at the same time, uh, we know that it was a part of your plan and purpose, and we know that the part of, uh, that that what you want to accomplish through it is to show your love and mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, this Advent season and every Sunday, uh, we just exalt his holy name, and we thank you for the cross, Lord, because through it we are saved. And Lord, uh, help us to understand that you are in complete control of whatever is going on in the world today. Lord, uh, give us your peace and help us to live it out in a world that needs to see it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.